Welcome to CLC Connects, the podcast that connects College of Lake County experts with you to give advice, opinion, or tips on anything you might want to know. Cybersecurity Month is right around the corner in October, so this week I'm chatting with Byron Sosa, Director of Cybersecurity, and Professor Eric Berkowitz. Professor Berkowitz specializes in cybersecurity, defense, and machine intelligence. Byron and Eric are here to help keep us safe online. Whether you're 15 or 80, there's something for you to learn here, so stay tuned. Welcome to CLC Connects, Byron and Eric. Thank you for having us on. We're going to talk about Cybersecurity Month. It is next month in October. When did it start? Cybersecurity Month started in 2004, uh, was part of the post-9-11, essentially, increases in security across the country in many fields to create awareness uh, of security across many realms. This one was started to increase uh, security in the cybersphere and help people realize that they needed to take some responsibility within their own personal space with regard to their digital presence and their digital security. Yeah, and and I would add as well, Jesse, from a timing perspective, it comes at a very good time because it it precedes the holiday season. So people having these reminders, especially when Thanksgiving's coming, Christmas is coming, just a little last minute reminder of some of the things you should be focusing on and looking for when everybody's usually taking a break. So threats are are higher around that Christmas shopping time, right? They're more prevalent because the the bad guys know that the good guys are on vacation and they're in relaxing mode. Yeah. Uh, So they might not be as vigilant. They might be distracted. But that's one of those things where uh, the threats really occur all the time. What are hackers looking for if I've got 18 tabs open and I'm shopping for holiday gifts? In general, a hacker is someone in the digital sphere who's looking for something that you wouldn't willingly give them. If we're talking in the realm of privacy, then it's information. If we're talking in the financial realm, they're looking to get access to your money. They're trying to take something from you. And so whatever means they're using to get at it, whether it's emotional subterfuge or software trickery, they're trying to get at it and finding to find some way in that you haven't protected. And that's the general gist of it. Now we can get into the technical details, but that's what they're doing. They're trying to get access to something. This is a stranger. You wouldn't give them your money. You wouldn't share with them your secrets. So they're going at it by some other means. Yeah, and I would also add uh, anything and everything that they can sell. So whether it's your usernames, emails, social security, credit card numbers, there's there are underground markets where a lot of these things are sold as as goods. Yeah. So it, the, the more they can get, the the more money they could potentially make. Okay, but I'm not a millionaire. Like I just have I work at, I work for CLC. <laughs> I don't like have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why are they interested? So so I would ask a question, Jesse. Do you do any online banking? Yeah. Do you ever check your credit card on your computer? Yeah. Do you have any friends that you email from your computer? Yeah. So right there, so you don't have to be a millionaire because if I could steal your credit card number, I could buy things on your dime that you're paying for. If I steal your social security I could, or your bank information, I could take your money. If I steal emails for all your family and friends, I have potential victims, other victims that I could target in my phishing campaign to try to get this information from. So there's there's more on your computer than you than you might know. So if they get into my emails, you know, they, they get all of my contact lists. What do they do with that? Your email is very often the front door to your life. 
your bank emails you, not just your friends, your bank emails you, your broker emails you. Many people get an update from Social Security. And so in many cases, and most people actually leave their email logged in because it's just convenient, that Gmail or Hotmail or Outlook or whatever it is, is actually the doorway to your life. And so there's information in there, which is the first step towards wherever it is they or the person to whom they're selling that access might be going. The other thing is, the answer to the other question is, stealing from someone who is other than wealthy didn't start in the cybersphere. Again, people were held up for $10. We remember the stories of people getting getting held up for a pair of sneakers. If you have it and someone wants it, and I might also add that in the cybersphere, both the cost and the risk are significantly lower than physical crime. It will be attempted as long as that continues to be true. So what can I do to keep myself safe online? Um, Just as like an average web user, buying things online, checking my bank account online, keeping in touch with my friends uh, through social media. How do I keep myself safe there? And is it different if I mostly use my phone? Um, Well, one is your phone is a computer. So it isn't different. The biggest thing, the biggest impediments to being secure are arrogance and cynicism. If you're arrogant or cynical about the risk, you significantly heighten your chances of falling prey. So in most cases, people are offered chances to reduce the risk and dismiss them as annoying. Now, they are annoying. (laughs) (laughs) But the second part of that, dismissing them because they're annoying, if you don't do that, you can increase your security. And that's the biggest step you can take, is overcome that impulse to dismiss them because they're annoying. You mean like two-factor authentication? (laughs) Two-factor authentication, (laughs) logging out of your email when you're not using it, um, choosing a secure password, all of those things that bug us, that um, slow us down, that decrease the joy of using these devices, to be blunt. Yeah. You also, uh, as, as consumers of these applications, we have to realize that we control the data we put out there. Just because the field says, what is your birthday, doesn't mean you have to put your birthday in there. Just because the GPS says home, doesn't mean you have to put your home address there. You know, So the more of your personal information that you put out there in, in the Internet, the more potential risk there is that somebody's going to be able to do some damage to you. I want to ask you to measure risk of these following devices that like, I use almost every day, and I, I think a lot of our listeners probably use every day. Um, so for measuring risk, you know, quick yes or no. Should I use these or not? And if I am using them, how do I stay safe and protected on them? Um, the first one is Alexa. So I would say maybe. Maybe. Yeah, so any, any of the tools that we're going to talk about, as long as you know how you use them and you use them the right way, and by using them the right way, I would say with Alexa, you don't want to have personal, sensitive conversations in front of your Alexa. You, you also want to make sure that if you're connecting out to the Internet, for example, you don't put it on the same wireless network that all your other devices are on. Maybe you put it on your guest network that a lot of these devices have built in. So anything that you don't directly control that needs Internet access is separated from the rest of your things. So I'm not saying don't use Alexa. I'm just saying just you can take precautions to help you with the risk. Okay. What does my Fitbit know about me? Yeah, your Fitbit <laughs> knows where, where you like to go, how, how often you go, 
you know, how long you go in some certain instances. Lots of times that data is reported up to the cloud. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very important for you to have a strong username, password, or MFA <laughs> for your account so that individuals can't take your data and they can't track you. But, but the other thing that I would say there is try as much as you can. I know we're all creatures of habit. Try to be unpredictable. Don't run the same place all the time. Maybe today you run from home. Tomorrow you run from work. The next day you run from your brother's house, you know, change your path, change your routes, change the days. You can still get the workouts in. You can still track the information. But if I was trying to do something bad to you and I'm watching your account, I don't necessarily know where you're going to be. Yeah, that's interesting. There's another thing that very few people try and very few people are comfortable with. But if you need to go somewhere, leave your phone. The only way you can go there and not be known, and this was, is to leave your phone. But I, I do, and this is somewhat, and this is somewhat contentious. But you also, we need to do need to stop because if someone were to listen to this podcast from beginning to end, they would, um, they would, they, they would pull the power out of their meter, disconnect their phone, and <laughs> so one has to realize that within a realm we live in the world of 2022 where we live, and so either Google. One probably lives either in the Google universe or the Apple universe. And so information about your daily habits is going to be known in one of these two universes. And one has, that is what it is. And so within that realm, so Google traps my location. I turn on navigation, not because I don't know how to get to my place of work, but because I prefer to be alerted to accidents when I'm going to work because I don't want to be late to work. And so um, Google tracks my daily commute. I, there is that trade-off. And so one has to, I, I do take security for my passwords and other things. But there is that, 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 that relaxation of my privacy for the benefit of having that, that, that information. And if there is an accident on my commute, Google will alert me and tell me to take side roads. One has to sort of shift into that mode of thinking and, not, and realize that, um, that, that that absolute privacy isn't there. To, to the point that you made earlier about risk, that's one of the things that we all have a different tolerance for. You know, so you can make a recommendation, but I, I have neighbors that leave their car doors open at night because they still think we're in the 70s, that nobody's going to steal their things. And then I have neighbors that have you know, all the extra bells and whistles with us. So we all have our own personal tolerance for risk. We all have to make those decisions, what we turn on and what we turn off, based upon how comfortable we feel. Somebody has um, my data, like say my Fitbit gets hacked. <laughs> what you know, where does that go? And and I, I think I have an idea that it's the dark web. But can you explain exactly what you know what that is and what does that mean for somebody? We all go to you are uh, out websites by name. The dark web is a scary term for a bunch of internet sites that are only accessible by IP addresses or even more so through more technical means of accessing them, but they don't have website names. Now, because they are only accessible through more technical accesses, they tend to only be accessed by hackers. But that is the sum total of their darkness. What it means if you, get, if you find out that your information is out on the dark web it means that information is out there. So what you want to do as a, as a person who wants to minimize the harm that can ensue because that information is out there is minimize the chances that that information in the aggregate 
would be used by anyone to create a digital you. So you want to, in a structured way, go through and change how you are represented everywhere there's a manifestation of you. So you manifest in different places as a username, a password, and all these things because that is the digital you. You want to go around and change the digital you everywhere that's possible. Now, unfortunately, the one core component of the digital you that is unchangeable is your social security number. Now, that's unchangeable. But what you want to do is, and hopefully you have a list somewhere of all the accounts, you want to go through and change the digital you, your digital persona, so it is as distinct from the one that got out onto the Internet as possible. And that was the step. So you go through and you call up your credit card company and you say, I need a new credit card number because that credit card number is part of the um, digital you. Annoying as heck because you have auto payments. But you do it. So it can get complicated. But you need to, and then you go through and you change it so that the, the um, digital you that's on the dark web is a non-person. And that's, those are the steps you take. Yeah, and I would also add, it becomes important to do a lot of vigilance. Look at your credit card statements. Look at your bank statements. You have the ability to pull credit reports, you know, for, uh, once a year for free. Take that extra step. Do that uh, um, vigilance so that if somebody is taking some of your data or trying to pretend to be you or trying to put things and buy things and put you on the on the on the hook for paying for them you can see it the sooner you identify it and notify the appropriate entity that so if, if your bank account got hacked the sooner you notify the bank the greater the chances that they could stop your losses if you take too long the bank might come back and say well why'd you sit on it for six months and didn't tell me before yeah. and they might not give you your money back so I, I want to say, I mean, we hear a lot about this concept of identity theft. Mm -hmm. But identity theft can be seen from a proper, actually a more, um, a different perspective. Identity theft is when either a commercial or a government entity wrongly attributes the cost of a transaction to you. It isn't the, an act on the part of some hacker or other person. It's actually an act on the part of a government or commercial entity claiming you did something you didn't do. And unfortunately, in the digital space, that government or commercial entity doesn't need any proof. Yeah. And uh, until voters get together and vote in um, laws that, that require them to have some um, higher burden of proof, this is the world in which we live. I have this dog <laughs> camera. I can throw treats at my dog from my job here. <laughs> like while I'm sitting at my desk, but my dog is at home. Um, and I can see my dog on the camera, and I have two dogs, and it's really cute watching them. But I got an alert today that said to update the firmware on the camera. What is that for? It didn't change anything about how my camera works, I think, as far as I can tell. Doing that update, is that a safety precaution? So I'd say right off the bat, I could see a situation where your dog is probably trying to hack into that. Yeah. Feed <laughs> give, me, my... <laughs> give me a snack tool <laughs> to try to get some. The dog's free. the threat. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, the, the real answer, I guess, to your question, Jesse, is it depends who sent it. right? Because one of the things that we get a lot of, and this is where a lot of these phishing uh, attacks come in, you'll get an alert that looks like something legitimate from your vendor that isn't coming from the vendor. So if it's not legitimate... Don't click on it. Okay. If it is legitimate, it could be their way of saying, hey, we found some weaknesses in our software, 
we have the fixes. We need you to go out there and download and apply the fixes. Okay. So that could also be a, a good uh, cybersecurity steward, a good product vendor who's trying to keep your you safe as well. You mentioned that I have to make sure that it's actually from the vendor. So how do I know? Yeah, so that's one of the first things. Uh, and then I, I'll tell you very commonly, I get a lot of emails that say that the, the McAfee version that I'm running on my computers is not uh, up to date and I need to update it. Problem is I don't have McAfee on any of my computers. <laughs> so, so right off the bat, that's a, a good indicator. Yeah. But the big thing is to make sure that whatever website you think it's pointing you to or it's telling you to click to, if there's a link in there or a button that they want you to push, instead of clicking on it, just put your mouse on top of it. Mm-hmm. And when you hover, which is what that's called, it'll give you an indication as to what website you're actually going to. So if you're expecting to go to product vendor A and you're going to a completely different website, there's a good chance that it's not legit. Okay. People keep telling me to use a VPN. What is a VPN? For those who use it for work, it is a network established by the people at your work that establishes an encrypted connection, which is entirely between the device at which you're sitting and some device inside the network at your workplace. So I need to say that because that has nothing to do with the VPNs that are being advertised for general purpose use. A VPN, and there are a multitude of them being for gen- advertised for general purpose use, is a secure connection between your computer or your phone and some computer out there on the internet, more often than not, in Amazon's cloud. Now, what happens when you use this is you establish a connection between whenever you connect to a web server, let's just say you're going to Google, just to use that. Um, 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 When you're using a VPN, then your computer will connect between yourself and that cloud in Amazon, and then a regular ordinary connection, just like you always use, will go between there and Google on the open internet which means that you are taking an extra step always whenever you communicate, whether you're going to Google or to WhatsApp or to your television provider or whomever, every connection you establish to any site on the Internet always takes a circuitous route to the endpoint at the end of that VPN, which is out in the cloud, and then to your provider. Now, what security that provides? Darned if I know. (laughs) Now, that VPN provider may have certain filtering that they do, so they may only allow certain websites through. So they may say that we have a list of malicious websites, so if you try to connect to this known hacking site, we will stop it. If you try to connect to this known phishing site, we will stop it. So they have a list of filtration that they do, so they prevent you from connecting to a known set of nefarious sites. But that is the sum total of the security you get because there's always the same open Internet connection between the endpoint of that VPN and the Internet because you eventually need to go out on the Internet to get wherever you're going. And, of course, there's the downside that you and all of the other customers are being channeled into the VPN before you go out. So depending on their total capacity, you may actually be paying for a gigabit Internet pipe but you're actually being reduced to 
sharing the capacity of this VPN provider. Some of them have more capacity than others. I'm not going to talk about, um, I'm not going to vet commercial providers here, but some of them are better than others. So the security you get from attaching to a VPN, that money could potentially be better spent elsewhere. Okay. As far as providing, because you could also do that same filtration at your own computer. Okay. Sounds like it's uh, another one of the trade-offs between safety and convenience, too. And maybe that is one of the ones where you might want to, if you can get the safety from your computer, go that way because it doesn't sound like it's you, actually that convenient. You maybe. could. There are There is software that will filter known nefarious sites okay. on your own computer. Mm -hmm. And without the added potential for all the failures that are potential in having to connect to a VPN, go through the VPN, and then go back out on the Internet. Okay. And if there, you I would agree. The, the, the only thing I would add uh, is that there's a lot of free VPNs out there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these free providers, it's free because they don't want anybody else to see what sites you're going to, but they are. Yeah. And then they know how to market to you, market you know products and ads, and they, they might sell you information. So the old adage about there's no such thing as a free lunch, yeah, yeah that's very true. <laughs> so just be careful. Oh, I, yeah, I'm going to add that. Some people go out on the VPN because they believe that by using the VPN, they are hiding from their Internet service provider the list of websites to whom they're going. The problem with that belief is unless they've read the service level agreement with their VPN provider, their VPN provider is probably aggregating that list and selling it back to their ISP, <laughs> more likely than not. Yeah. And, and to Eric's point, uh, you got to read the agreement, yeah. and it's on page 100 in small font, uh, <laughs> yes. usually. Do you guys read the agreements? I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't do it personally, but I am on the lists of people who make hay of this stuff. Okay. So, yes, this is, th th this, this is geek humor. Yeah. Yes, to be blunt. <laughs> so I'll say I read them just so that I know what I'm signing up for. Yeah. But yes. at the end of the day, do you want to use the product or not? Right. If you don't accept it, you don't use the product. Yeah. yeah. What is the cloud? Well, the cloud is, again, it, 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 I don't know who sits in, but there's a committee some, sitting somewhere, <laughs> perhaps in, in, in the real cloud, making up all these words. <laughs> but um, the cloud is a set of computers to which we don't have physical access and therefore they use the word cloud because it's this ethereal concept and since we don't have physical access but someone out there is maintaining these things and they might switch out one physical uh, computer for another but we gain access over um, over the internet and because we gain access over the internet and the internet has become ubiquitous we tend to think of it as something which we just like the clouds we can access and see from everywhere and so perhaps the metaphor in this case is somewhat apt. You know, I can look at my photos on my phone. I can see them on my computer. Is that a good idea? Like, are, are they safe sitting up there in that cloud? You'd have to define safe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, is it? am I at risk by keeping things there or by um, like using the cloud as my, my storage space instead of a small hard drive or my own computer's hard drive? Is there is there another like trade-off or a convenience you know, that I'm doing by storing more and more in the cloud as, you know, as the year goes on. Well, I'll define, and I'll defer, but I'll define my sarcastic response. And by, by my sarcastic <laughs> response, I meant, do you, are you, are you, um, um, when by safe, do you mean losing access or losing control? 
Um, I guess I would mean uh, losing control in this. Although I have lost access to things in the cloud, and I have no photos from before 2016. Oh boy, <laughs> they're up in some cloud somewhere, but they're not on my phone anymore, <laughs> and I can't get to them. So, but I do mean, I do mean um, as far as control of my information goes. Yeah. So, so I, I would say. Uh, you're not going to get very many yes or no answers from me. My answer is going to be, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a pretty common answer. But but at the end of the day, you're, you're putting your data and your information in the hands of somebody whose reputation is their business. Okay. So if you put your things in Apple's iCloud, for example, it is in their vested interest to make sure that they're protecting your data. Does that mean it's foolproof? No. A anything can be exposed. A lot of it might depend on you as well. If your account, you know, is Jesse and your password is password, well, there's a good chance it that is. somebody, okay, then you're going to have to change it. <laughs> but then it, it, a lot of that, we, we have some control as consumers as to how we secure things, you know. So if you use a strong password, if you use the multi-factor authentication, in the Apple world, there's a concept called jailbreaking your phone. Don't do that. Okay. So when you jailbreak your phone, you're essentially removing some of the protection mechanisms that Apple puts in. It gives you more creative control as to what you do with your phone, but it typically voids the Apple warranty because then they don't they don't support you anymore because you stepped out of bounds. Okay. So some of it is in your control, some of it is out, but if you feel more comfortable, like in the case you said you lost your data, having a personal external hard drive that you back things to and unplug, you know, don't leave it connected to your computer because if you do, it's also susceptible to things like ransomware. Okay. But when you unplug it, you're making it very easy for somebody to steal all your data if they can have access to this drive. Yeah. So you have to make sure you know where it is and that you lock it. And if there's a fire, you know, things like that. Uh, so some of it is in our control. Some of it is in theirs. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say it's inherently bad to put things out in the cloud. Okay. So um, I just mentioned that one of the biggest issues that's now really um, relevant is these, um, these video doorbells. Um, and there's a big debate now, and there are different contracts people have with the different companies about when and under what circumstances and under whose authorization they're willing or um, going to share the videos with law enforcement. And this is becoming a tremendous concern. I mean, one, one of the issues I know in Illinois, there, there are laws against filming someone without consent. But many people have these video doorbells, less than um, particularly in places where the houses are um, were, um, very close to the street. They film every passerby. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I, I haven't actually, I actually don't know, and I'm not a legal authority by any means, but I'm wondering how this actually works out from a legal perspective because every, every passerby is actually being filmed without their consent and with no intent to approach the house. Um, so... Um, uh, I don't understand, and I also, every delivery person is, again, filmed. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they are compelled to approach the house where they're going to get fired. So I'm wondering how this actually works in Illinois. Yeah. But um, I just got a, a check from Facebook because of <laughs> all of this. So, uh, yeah, I got, like, yeah. a big $400 check. But, uh, yeah, these people are filming without consent, and no, no delivery person consents to be filmed just because they're doing their job, uh, delivering to houses in Illinois. So I, I got to wonder how this actually works out but so these things are, are in the cloud and so particularly and Byron I'm sure knows that the, um, the different service level agreements depending on whether you have a commercial account or a FERPA protected educational account 
or the free account with Google or um, Outlook where in exchange for having a free account, they reserve the right they, to perform research on the, um, on the information in your account, whether it's video information or text information in your docs account, whatever it is or whatever. So you have to understand the service level agreement there was once a huge discussion on the internet about what would happen if um, J.K. Rawlings wrote her famous books on um, on Google Docs. Who would actually own the movies? Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and then Google will start a streaming service. <laughs> Have all those movies. The last thing I want to talk about is just kind of go through this this quick thought exercise. So I'm 15 years old, and I play video games, and I have a smartphone. I'm talking to my friends on Snapchat. How am I going to become a victim as a general teenage user? And do I need to worry because I'm under 18? You know, it doesn't matter if, you know, if my information gets out on the dark web anyway. Yeah, and in some in some instances it does, uh, but but the good thing is there there are steps that you can take. So when it comes to social media, for example, a lot of these applications have security settings that you can turn on to limit what access uh, you you have for that social media app. Now, usually it's not turned on by default because the the providers of these social media apps want to make it as user friendly and as easy and beautiful of an experience as possible. But you can definitely take that those precautions, enable some of those things. Uh, you can also limit the, like we were talking about earlier, the type of information you put out there. But a lot of it is just getting that kind of, you know, I, I want I want to talk to my friends, and all my friends are online these days. Uh, but a lot of these systems have uh, responsibilities that they put on their parents too. So sometimes, you know, if you read the agreements, it'll say you, you're you're attesting to the fact that you're at, at this age level, or if you're a minor, your parents are allowing you to do this mm -hmm. um, but more times than not at, at least what i've seen in my personal experience the kids sometimes know more than the parents yeah so the parents don't know enough to be able to tell if the kids are doing it the right way so educating uh the next generation as to how to do these things properly is probably one of the best defenses against uh, any any attacks okay the other thing to remember is that you already have a financial life and your social security number is forever doesn't matter that you have or you don't have whatever gifts or whatever that you have from them. Your social security number is part of your financial life and it is forever. The government won't give you a new one. Um, and then my last question is, I am 85 years old and I'm using the internet to maybe pay some bills, definitely keep in touch with my family. I have an email address. What should I do to kind of prepare for an illness or an end of life situation where all these things still exist. How do I wrap them up and handle this? So I think the, the first step uh, would be knowing what you have. So so knowing what, where your accounts are, knowing where your data is, having a good inventory of all the different places. But you might also want to consider having some kind of a trusted backup person that has access to your account, like a spouse or a child. Um, but they also have lawyers that um, specialize in estate planning and, and this kind of planning. But you definitely need to have some kind of a plan for what happens to your data and your accounts and your information if you happen to pass away. Uh, one of the other, uh, that's also one of the other advantages of using password managers. Uh, as long as you have a backup admin, you don't have to tell me. I, I just know that, you know, I have an envelope here that says if something happens to me, open this envelope. Now I have the, the access to the master password vault that I can then access all the other accounts. But you also have 
in some of these accounts, especially the financial ones, you have to designate beneficiaries. So it's mm -hmm. probably a good idea to make sure you do that as well. The large companies like Facebook and, um, and um, well, Facebook since the, um, own most of the big ones now anyway, but um, they've gotten better about it. There have been some high-profile cases where people have unfortunately met on timely ends, so younger people, but also the people who have met um, um, a um, normal end of life. So they've gotten better about how this information passes on, but yeah, but it, they still haven't totally caught up, and nor has the legislation involved. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, as Byron said, uh, and this isn't different than physical inheritance, when someone is um, uh, up in years and the world is beginning to appear to move on faster and faster, if they don't have someone that they trust and is then it's very, very difficult. And this is the same with their physical, I mean, with their car and their mm -hmm. house. And with their digital presence, it's incredibly difficult. They need someone they trust. And if they can't, don't have that one, that's something organically, a family member, a friend, then paying someone, usually a member of the legal profession or an accountant, then that's the second best option. On that note, thank you guys for coming on today. Thank you. Thank right. you. Have a good day. You too. If you want more tips, check out our important informational sessions that are being offered by CLC every Wednesday in October during Cybersecurity Month. You'll find a sign-up link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in two weeks.